good to see you all this morning. If if you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. I have some Bibles up here if you showed up without one. Love for you to follow along in the text with us. God bless you, sister. Anyone else need a Bible this morning? Exodus chapter 2. I have one more. Anyone else? This is, It's been a while since I've handed out all of them. Come on, don't let us just have one up here. And Anyone? Just throw it in the crowd? No? All right. If you ever need a Bible, we have Bibles back there on the resource table. We just love, love, love to have you follow along with us as we teach through the text this morning. And that's what we're going to do in Exodus chapter 2. So let's pray as we approach the text this morning. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. And and God, we come before you with just a sense of awe. Father, you are our sense of awe. You are awe-inspiring. God, you are awesome. Everything about you, God, just stirs our curiosity and and piques our interests and draws us deeper to know more. And Lord, I, I know you have more for us this morning. So God, I thank you for each and every person that you've brought in this place, to anyone who may be tuning in. Father, I just pray that you'd speak to us. I pray that you'd bring a word that is meant just for us, God, as if we're sitting here literally hearing you speak through your word to our hearts. And Father, I just pray that you would just anoint my lips to just be your vessel as you, Holy Spirit, are just teaching us and illuminating Jesus. So Father, do that. Have your perfect work here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we started the book of Exodus together. And we spent some time last week just introducing the book, giving some background kind of talking about who the children of Israel are, why are they in Egypt, how they got there, all that fun background stuff that I'm going to spare you who were not here last week from. If if that interests you and you want to know kind of some more of the background of the book of Exodus and how we got here, go to our website, go to the podcast, and you can listen to that and tune in there on your own. But we want to move past that. We want to move deeper into the book of Exodus this morning. We want to go deeper into this first section of the book. And I've been calling this first section of the book, the first four chapters of the book of Exodus, I'm calling it setting the stage for redemption. Because that's what God's really been doing. He's been setting the stage for his great redemptive work in drawing the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And we're seeing some specific things that he needs to do. We talked about how that had to kind of set it up. The people needed to be redeemed. The people needed to be in a place where they were crying out for redemption. And we saw them go to that place. But we also need to to then see God start to raise up his deliverer. Raise up the instrument that God is going to use for the great deliverance of his people in Egypt. And that's really what we're going to start to talk about this morning. And we're going to spend the next couple weeks talking about it as well because we're not going to get real far this morning. I want to just prepare you. We're going to talk a little bit. We're going to cover 10 verses in the book of Exodus and kind of shake out what is going on here. But then we're going to spend some time talking about what happens between verse 10 and verse 11. Because you don't see it in your text, but 40 years pass between verse 10 and verse 11. And we want to talk about what God does in that time. And it's very applicable to what God wants to do in all of our hearts. But I I want to repeat this part. I want to talk to you about what redemption means. Because it's so important and because it's such an important theme in the book of Exodus, I want to be a little repetitive here. So let's talk about redemption. We talked last week that redemption has two parts. And redemption can be looked at from two different perspectives. We can look at redemption from the human perspective, from, from the, the nation of Israel in Egypt's perspective, and that is they need to be delivered from something. Redemption is to be delivered from bondage, to, to be delivered from something, saved from something, delivered out of something, or delivered through something. And that's what God is going to do. That's redemption from a human perspective. But then we also talked about redemption from God's perspective, what God does through redemption. And we talked about how redemption from God's perspective is buying back a possession that is his, purchasing a people to be his very own people, paying the price to satisfy a debt to redeem or ransom a people. And that's that's also what we're going to see in the book of Exodus, both perspectives, redemption from the human perspective, redemption from God's perspective. But I, I remember last week we talked about that, that illustration of the boy and the boat and how, how redemption is kind of, he made it and he bought it, we're, we're redeemed twofold. But I got another example that I want to share for you that I think is just equally as applicable to kind of set the stage for this idea of redemption. 
And the story goes like this. A long time ago, there was a pastor in Boston. You can tell why I already like this story, right? It's about a pastor in Boston. But this pastor, he's finishing his Sunday morning, and he's leaving, and he sees another boy walking down the street carrying a rusty cage full of birds. And the pastor's thinking, okay, wait a minute, this doesn't quite make sense. What's going on? So he asks the boy, hey, where did you get all those birds? And the boy proudly says, oh, I caught all of them in a field. And the pastor goes, okay, what are you going to do with them? And the boy says, oh, I'm going to play with them and then eventually feed them to my cat. And the pastor goes, oh, huh. He says, I'll tell you what, I want to buy them from you. And the boy says, buy them? Why would, you want, why would you want a rusty cage with a bunch of birds? He goes, they don't sing very well. They're not, they're not parakeets. They're not parrots. They don't talk. They don't sing. Why do you want them? And the pastor says, well, they're important to me. Let me, let me buy them. For, I'll offer you $10 for them. And I told you it was a long time ago. So the boy's like, $10? You're going to be kidding me. $10? This is a horrible deal for you, but I'll take it. $10. So he takes the deal, and he leaves whistling, proud about making $10. But the pastor takes this cage of birds, this rusty cage of birds. He sets down what he just bought, opens the cage, and sets them free. But think about that. He bought them to set them free. And that's a picture of redemption. That's what Jesus has done for us. He who the Son has set free, or who the one the Son has set free, is free indeed. There's a true freedom in Christ, a freedom to be who we have been called to be because the chains of sin, the debt of sin has all been paid. That's redemption. And so I just want to be talking about that because that's the overlying theme in the entire book of Exodus. So I want that on your mind. I want that on your hearts as you start to think about this and meditate on this. But that's what's being set up here as we start to see God begin to raise up his deliverer here in the book of Exodus. So with all that in mind, let's pick it back up. Chapter 2, verse 1, says this, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And I want you just to, to take a look at what's going on here. Remember a little bit of the background that we talked about last week. Egypt has become a very difficult place for the nation of Israel to live in, right? They're in the midst of dark days. They're under heavy oppression. They're under heavy affliction. The future seems really bleak for them and even more bleak for any children they may decide to bring into this world. However, we're told at the beginning of chapter 2, in the midst of all that, we have a man named Amram. Now we're going to find out later his name is Amram. For now you're going to have to take my word for it, but his name is Amram. That's going to be Moses's father. He's of the tribe of Levi, which is going to be the priestly tribe of Israel. This is pre-law in the book of Exodus. It hasn't happened yet, but Levi, that's going to be the priestly tribe. But this name Amram, it literally means of the family of God. That's what the name Amram means, of the family of God. That's going to be Moses's father. But he's going to take a woman, we'll find out her name later is Yochaved, and she too is the tribe of Levi, but her name means whose glory is God. So, of the family of God is going to marry a woman whose name is whose glory is God, and they're going to be the two parents of Moses, right? Already setting up something beautiful here, but I just want us to see that it's going to be their faith first. It's going to be the faith of these two parents first that God is going to use to set up this raising up of Moses, the raising up of the deliverer that God is going to use to set his people free. And some of us are saying, what do you mean? Why their faith first? What does it mean, their faith? And I I want you just to understand this. It takes faith to get married in this day. It takes even more faith as these two parents will make the decision to have children in this day. It requires great faith. We, we look at our world, and, and some of us as parents, or maybe expectant parents, or, or parents maybe think you're going to have other children, more children, you're thinking, yeah, could I really, could I justify bringing a child into this world? Right, we have that conversation, and some of us think, I don't know that I could. I want you to know, I, I know things are getting bad, things are getting poor, things are on a moral decline in our culture, right? We all agree with that, we can see it. There's a downward trend that is happening. But I want you to know, things were already horrible, 
in Egypt, right? They're already being heavily oppressed, afflicted. The male children have been commanded by God to be, or not by God, not by God, by, by the Pharaoh who thinks he's God, lowercase g, to be thrown into the Nile River. That's already happening at this moment. Yet these parents are going to decide to walk by faith, not fearing the Pharaoh's command, and they're going to have, they're going to have children. And not just Moses, they're going to have several children. There's going to be a family of Amram and Jochebed that are going to be used to raise up the deliverer as God starts to move. But I want you to think about that. One family is going to change the history of the nation of Israel, and it's going to affect us even here today. This one family, these, these parents of faith who are going to raise up this child. I just think it's so beautiful. I think it's so profound. I know that things are getting crazy, but I want you to know, I know it personally, and I can see it biblically that children are a blessing. Children are a blessing. Sometimes, sometimes I have to look in the mirror and say, children are a blessing. <sighs> children are a blessing. Right? I get it, parents, right? We, but they are. They are a blessing. But I want you to know, where do you think the, the next missionaries and pastors and evangelists and teachers and, and whatever other gifts God may bestow upon the, the next generation, where are they going to come from? They're going to come from godly families who are raising up godly children to then send them back out. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in this family of Moses. That's why we're told this information. And I think it's profound because it's not only Moses, Aaron, who's going to be Moses' own brother, his older brother, Aaron, another male born during this time, he's going to be the first priest in Israel's history. Think about it, the very first priest is going to come from this family. Moses' older sister Miriam, we're going to see her, we see her in verse 4, she's going to be a prophetess in Israel. She's going to be a worshiper of God with a tambourine in her hand, right, from this family. And then, of course, Moses, the very instrument that God uses. But I just want you to see that these children are a heritage. These children are a blessing. These children are going to take the baton from us. These children are going to move as they are doing the same thing we see happening here. Point towards the deliverance of God. Bring Jesus into the equation of other people's lives. Point people to him. Be salt and light. All those great things that we're seeing in Moses, we start to see it right here in this family, but we can see it in our own family as well. What a testimony. Listen to this now. This family of God, whose glory is God, is going to be used to raise up the deliverer of God's people. Right? What an awesome testimony. What an amazing thing that God is setting up through this family. But verse 2 just tells us plainly that the woman conceived and Moses is born. Now even though there's this edict in Egypt to kill all male children, throw them in the Nile, Yochaved fears God, trusts the Lord more, and she's going to hide Moses for three months. Chris, if you can, brother, can you switch the slide? I can't, I can't seem to switch this uh, slide of this verse. I want to show you this verse. This is Hebrews 11.23. It says, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. Chapter of faith, but it says, by faith Moses. But it says, when he was born, right? Whose faith are they really talking about? Whose faith is really getting the credit? It's the parents who hid Moses for three months, not fearing Pharaoh's commands, saying, we're not going to keep this edict of the Pharaoh. We're not going to fear his command. We're going to trust the Lord, and we're going to give this child a chance. We're going to let the Lord do what only the Lord can do, and so they hide him. But we know from the account in Exodus that Yochaved knows that she can't hide him forever, and it's eventually going to bring a risk to her entire family. So with no options left, she decides, I'm going to make an ark for him. I'm going to make a small boat, and I'm not just going to throw him in the river. I'm going to put him in the river, giving him every chance of survival. So out of love, she makes this ark. She fills it with pitch and asphalt. She makes it where it's buoyant and it's waterproof. No leaks are going to spring in this thing. And then we kind of see she strategically, delicately puts him in the river, but in the reeds where she knows maybe this is a popular place for some people to walk down and see and bathe, as we're going to see in a minute. But think about this, in order to save her son, she has to let him go. That's literally what she has to do. I can't even fathom how hard that would have been for her, but that's what she does. She lets her son go, trusting the Lord out of faith. But look at what happens. Verse 5 says, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. 
And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Stop in there for a few minutes. In fact, that's it. We're not going to read from Exodus anymore this morning, but we still got a lot to talk about here, so hang tight. But Pharaoh's own daughter, she goes to the riverside with her maidservants to bathe. And she's walking alongside, and, and notice something catches her eye, which tells us there's something unique, there's something, there's something special about the way Yochaved puts into her, her, her design of this ark, because it catches Pharaoh's daughter's eye. And I just want you to think about, this is Pharaoh's daughter, right? She has anything and everything you could ever want. But there's something about this ark that was made by a loving mother that, that stops her. She says, go get that. What is that? I want to know what that is. Sends a maid to bring it. The maid brings it to Pharaoh's daughter. And in like this perfectly divine timed moment, lid gets lifted. Moses starts to weep. But I don't think it's like one of those like crazy annoying baby cries that sometimes happen. Maybe not your kids. You know, my kids had a cry like that sometimes. We would always quote the scripture and say, the righteous cry out. That's what's happening. Our child is... Okay, well, parents, you get it, right? But I think he he starts to weep here in this moment. And, And notice that Pharaoh's daughter unlike her father, has compassion on this child, right? The edict has gone throughout all of Egypt. Pharaoh's daughter is under the same edict. You find a male child in, in Egypt, you were, to, you were to cast him in the Nile, right? This is the same command that is to her, yet she has compassion, and her, like Yochaved, is willing to disobey her own father, and she's not going to put Moses back in the river, she has this idea to keep him for herself. And I don't know what that looked like. I think, I think it looks like when a mother holds her child for the first time. And she's just looking, at, I'm never going to let you go. We're not told of the dialogue that happens there, but we are told this. Miriam, Moses' big sister, who's probably pretty young, 10-ish around this time. She's, I don't know, maybe hiding in the weeds, sneaking around. She's been watching to see what happens with Moses. And now Pharaoh's daughter has her brother in her arms. And she's going to come up and say, hey, do you want me to go find one of the Hebrew mothers to nurse this child? Again, it's almost like it solidifies the thought that was in Pharaoh's daughter's head all along. Yes, that's exactly what I do. And so then Miriam goes and gets her own mother, Moses' mother, and says, I found one. She wants to nurse this child. And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go nurse your child. She doesn't know it's his child, her child, but go nurse your child. I'll pay you. I'll give you your wages. And she's going to get a chance to, to nurse her child, raise her child up for perhaps the next three to five years. That was about the time before weaning took place in this day. Three to five years, this mother's going to get to nurse and pray over, and teach, and share who God is, who Moses is, who the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, start pouring in the word to this child over the next three to five years. That's what's going to happen. It's beautiful. It's divine. But I want you to think about this. It's also going to be impactful. By the time we see Moses in in verse 11, it's going to say he's going to go out to his brethren and visit them. Now he calls them my brethren, which means he knows who he is. How would he know that? Because his mom told him. Because his mom sowed in some truth and probably his father too sowed in some truth. Sowed in the word of God. I want you to know this. Parents and children's ministry workers and volunteers, please be encouraged by this. I am, I'm always trying to teach my kids the Bible. I'm always trying to get them to read their Bibles. I'm always sharing with them. And I know sometimes they're like, doo-doo-doo, you know, like, what's going on? I think I can see something up here that is, is much more interesting to me. And I'm like, no, 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 focus, focus, right? And it kind of feels like nothing is happening. But more is happening than you think is, is happening. The word is being sown into their lives. The word is, is being poured into them. And it's like a perfect seed that at some point in God's grace is going to start to grow and then it's going to start to bear fruit. But we just want to keep pouring the seed in. That's what happens with Moses and he's an incredible testimony of a faithful mother pouring into him and then we're going to see some incredible fruit that comes out of this. 
But as we look at this, the irony of these, these first ten verses is pretty, it's a pretty amazing situation. I mean, not only is Yochaved going to, to put her faith in the Lord and hide her son for three months, then she's going to get the opportunity to keep her son for even longer, three to five years perhaps, because God is in. What, what irony there. I want you to think about these two things as well. It's going to be Moses, it's going to be Pharaoh's daughter that's going to name Moses Moses. Right? We actually don't know what Moses' Hebrew name would have been for the first three months of his life. We don't know what Amram and Yochebed named him. We're not told. But he's just called Moses. That name seems to stick. And I think it sticks because it's a prophetic name of what God is going to do. We see Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because she drew him out of the Nile. But God, it's like God leaves the name Moses. He lets it stick because Moses is going to be the one that God is going to use to draw his people out of Egypt. So there's some beautiful irony here in that. But there's one more that I think is pretty profound. Remember that the command from Pharaoh was to kill all the Hebrew sons. Pharaoh had this idea that the males were the threat. The sons were the threat in Egypt. But I want you to see that it was actually three daughters that God used to set up this great redemption to raise up his deliverer. It was first a daughter named Yochaved who becomes a wife and then a mother and defies the king's edict keeping her own son. And then it's her daughter Miriam who's going to stay close by and make the great suggestion that maybe solidifies the thoughts that are going on in a third daughter's heart, the daughter of Pharaoh who's going to take Moses as her own son. I think that's amazing, right? God uses the men and God uses the women to be able to complete his redemptive work in Egypt. That's beautiful and it's ironic here, but that's the way God works. Now from the book of Exodus standpoint here, as we stop at verse 10, before we get to verse 11, as I mentioned earlier, 40 years are going to pass. And I want you to think about that. That's all we have. That's that's all we're given in the book of Exodus for Moses' first 40 years. Now, you know we talked about this last week. Moses is the one inspired by the Holy Spirit to record and write down these events for us. What if you had 40 years that are just silent? You're thinking, Moses, why wouldn't you write down more things there? Why wouldn't you give us more information? We all want to know. What if it's because there's just nothing good or God-glorifying to write? What if these silent years are really silent for a purpose and the silence is deafening because there just isn't anything good to include? I think that's highly likely. I think we're going to see some other examples from from Moses or about Moses that are really profound here. But that's what I want to do with the rest of the time that we have this morning is I want to slow down and I want us to actually talk about what we do know about these first 40 years. We don't have the information in Exodus, but we do have some more information given to us in other areas of our Bible, and it's really profound. So Chris, show us the next reference verse. This is Stephen's testimony in Acts chapter 7, verses 21 through 22. Stephen says this, But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Now that first part we know. We know that he's going to become the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But then Pharaoh's daughter is going to raise him, have him taught up in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. This is the, this is the peak point in Egypt's history as a world power. And he's going to be taught up in all the wisdom, all the knowledge of the Egyptians. Moses is going to be in line to be the next most powerful ruler in the world. Think about that. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's living the life of privilege in excess. He has title and possessions and servants and cars, or I mean chariots, right? Chariots at this time, pools, etc., etc. He has the equivalency of, of thousands, if not millions, of Facebook and Twitter followers. He's, he's the kind of guy that's the headliner at every party he goes. He's on the cover of websites and the cover of popular magazines. Moses has it all during these first 40 years. Yet somewhere we're going to see in a few minutes that it did not satisfy This was not the fulfillment that he had longed for. It left him feeling empty and void. This can't be all there is. This can't be my great life's purpose. And I want us to know, maybe some of us, we've come to that conclusion ourselves. We've certainly seen it in other people. We've seen that that type of lifestyle just does not satisfy. If you ever get a chance to talk with a billionaire, ask a billionaire how much money is enough. He'll say just a little bit more. Ask a celebrity, how much fame is enough? Just a little bit more. 
Ask an athlete how many titles are enough. Just one more. Because it's a bottomless pit to try and satisfy the desires of the flesh. To try and buy into the seduction of self and satisfy our own desires. It is a bottomless pit that will eventually leave you empty and full of void and regret and a wasted life. That's why we see these celebrities and famous people and athletes, people that the world looks up to, and we can see they're miserable. They're lonely. They can have everything this world has to offer, but because they don't have a personal relationship with the God who created them, they don't know Jesus as Lord. They really have nothing. They have nothing that's eternal. And we start to see that manifest in their life. That's why the first 40 years of Moses in the book of Exodus are silent. Because in the big scheme of things, he has nothing. He has nothing. And so he's like, I just want to jump past that. I want to start talking about when God starts to move in verse 11. And we will in the coming chapters, in the coming weeks. But I just want us to really sit in this. Christ is our identity. Christ is our purpose. In Christ is where we find our contentment. And that starts to happen in Moses' life around his 40th birthday. Stephen says this, Acts 7.23. Chris, switch that way. There we go. It says, Now when he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. This is where things start to change in Moses' life around his 40th birthday in between verses 10 and 11 in Exodus chapter 2. But I want us to talk about this. It says it came into his heart. And we're thinking, what does that mean? What came into his heart? Heartburn came into his heart? Like what came into his heart, right? We're like, I don't know. But it's it's kind of a vernacular. It's kind of a a saying that we use. But what it means is this is the moment when the Spirit of God starts to break through in his life. This is the moment when the Spirit of God starts to draw him, starts to bring conviction to his heart, tries to show him and speak to him and convince him, Moses, you were made for something more than what you've become. Listen, I hope you've all experienced the drawing and the wooing and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I hope you have all experienced God's word to you saying, I love you, I've created you, I've redeemed you, and I've called you. And listen, if you haven't, please make it your aim to find out what God has for you. Make it your aim to hear what the voice of God wants to speak to you because it will change your entire life. It has changed Moses' life at this moment when it comes into his heart, when the Spirit of God starts prompting this desire to go and visit his brethren. A desire he's never had before, not like this. We'll talk about this in a moment, but I just want to explain this a little bit more so we kind of get it. When we think about this, it came into my heart, or or I say that's the Spirit of God starting to move in our lives. We say, what is that like? I want you to think about it like this. It's a prompting. It's a desire. It's like an inkling to do something that you know that that idea didn't come from you. And I'll give you an example. Several years ago now, I was I went grocery shopping at a, just a grocery store. I was going to buy some food for breakfast. So I, I bought a gallon of milk. I remember for sure it was a gallon of milk, but probably some eggs, some biscuits, some bacon, and some sausage, and you know maybe like an avocado in there. Like it probably wasn't the healthiest meal, but it was going to be delicious. But I bought these groceries. I got two bags of groceries. And as I'm walking out to my car, I've paid, it's over, I'm heading back to my car, I have this, I know it was the Spirit of God putting upon my heart to give these groceries to this woman who was just getting out of her car and walking into the grocery store. And I'm thinking, that's, that's not an idea that came from me, right? These are my groceries, I can't wait to go home and make this killer breakfast burrito. Lord, why do you want me to give it to this woman? But I didn't ask any questions, I just knew... It was from the Lord. Now, this woman, she wasn't begging. She didn't have a cardboard box. She didn't look like she needed any of this stuff. But I just said, Lord, okay, I know this idea didn't come from me. And I say, ma'am, I feel the Lord God wants me to give you these groceries. And she just starts weeping. She just breaks down weeping right there in that moment. And she says, I'm just in awe. I'm in awe of our Lord God. And I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, I was praying that somehow God was going to move in somebody's heart that they would just know that I needed to feed my kids for the weekend until I could get paid on Monday. And now here you are. And I was like, this is crazy, right? I'm, there's nothing special about me, right? This is what the Holy Spirit of God does when he moves in the heart of a Christian. 
right? This is what he wants to do in all of our lives, right? This is what the Spirit of God does. We are called the body of Christ. That's what the church is called. And we Christians, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. So when Jesus wants to do something, he puts it on our hearts. That's what that situation is like. But I take that situation and I say, that's exactly what's happening in the book of Exodus, You've got a whole nation of people crying out, God, deliver us. God, look upon our affliction. God, see our our heavy oppression. God, deliver us. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God who's promised us the homeland, deliver us. And God starts moving on Moses' heart. I want to use you. I have set this up to use you. That's exactly what we're seeing here. That's what it looks like when God starts moving on the heart of a person, when God starts moving on the heart of a believer. But everything changes in this moment when God starts to move, when God starts to speak. And I showed that word visit. It says he, he, has this, he has it in his heart to go visit his people. I want you to know this isn't like, hey, honey, what do you want to do today? Hey, should we just go visit the Thompsons, you know, see what they're doing? Like, that's not what this is about. It's not that kind of visit. Hey, you want to visit and have some coffee or tea? It's not, that's not that kind of visit either. This kind of visit is described in other verses like this. Luke 168, Chris, it says this, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, praising God for the visitation that God has done through the angel Gabriel and the upcoming redemption he's going to bring. Or this next one's even better. Luke 7, 16. It says, Then fear came upon all, And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. This quote right here in in Luke chapter 7, this is when Jesus shows up in the city of Nain. Jesus sees a funeral procession is taking place. Jesus walks right up to the coffin, places his hand, and says, Arise, and the young man who was dead rises up alive again. Why? Because God visited his people. That's the kind of visitation that God is putting upon Moses' heart. I want you to go visit my people because I am about ready to do an incredible, miraculous work. I am about to do an incredible work of deliverance and redemption. And Moses, I want to use you at the very center of it all. That's what we're talking about here. That's, that's what's happening here in Moses' heart. God is ready to respond, respond to his promises, respond out of his grace, respond to the plight of his people, and get involved in their very situation. So he says, Moses, this is what's getting put upon Moses' heart. Moses, I want you to forsake all that you've ever known. I want you to trust me and follow me. I want you to go get involved with my people. I want you to immerse yourself with them. I want their plight to be your plight because I want to use you to redeem them out of Egypt. That's what's happening in Moses' heart. That's what God is doing around his 40th birthday or in between verses 10 and 11 in Exodus chapter 2. Now friends, I wonder, because my mind works this way, I wonder... How long did it take Moses to respond to this drawing? Right, we're going to see a little later. It's not like he sees the burning bush and takes off his, his sandals because he, he realizes it's holy ground and God has to tell him one time, he's like, oh, cool, roger that, Lord, I'll go, right? And Moses kind of has the pattern of like, I need to hear it a couple times. So I wonder, how many times did the Lord have to pre- press this upon his heart? How, how long did he wrestle over this? How much sleep did Moses lose over this? How long did it take for Moses to obey? Again, I, I don't know. We're not told in the text. This is purely just my speculation here. But I think this is, this is something that happens over time. And I believe that because I know God is patient and long-suffering with me. And I know that God has had to ask me to do things multiple times before I finally obeyed. And, and this is a lot bigger than just a, a gallon of milk. Right? What God is pressing upon Moses' heart... We need to understand Moses gets what was at stake. He's ultimately being asked, I want you to forsake Egypt, Moses. Moses, the first thing I need to do is I need to call you out of Egypt. Moses, I need to, Moses you, draw you out of Egypt. And I want you to think about what this means. Here's the reality. Moses has to come to the conclusion there's an intersection in his life. There's a collision course where Moses says, you know what? I can't both be 
the prince of Egypt, and the servant of the Most High God used to deliver his people. I cannot be both. And that's the conundrum that we find in between verses 10 and 11. That's why Moses just skips some of this in his own account because he says, I just want to get to what God did. But it's so beneficial and applicable for us to look at this because how, how much is that so true in our lives? God's saying, who are you going to follow? Who are you going to obey? What do you want your life to be most about? Where do you want to spend your life? We're all spending our lives somewhere. Do you want to spend your life here in the Egypt that is this world? Or do you want to spend your life storing up treasures for me and my glory in heaven? That's the same conundrum. And so I wonder, how long did Moses have this feeling? How long did this prompting go upon his heart? How long did he wait and hesitate before he gets involved? I, I wonder... But I believe Moses eventually comes to the conclusion, God eventually draws his heart that he, that he says, Moses, what I want to offer you is going to be greater than you can even fathom. What I want to do in your life, Moses, it's going to be greater than all of Egypt can offer. But God in his grace says, but I need you to decide. I love that God does that. God does not force our hand. God does not make the decision for us. He says, Moses, I need you to decide. I can show you all I want to show you to take you up to this point, but if you want to go further, you have to step out in faith. But what does Moses do? Chris, show us Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. Moses does this. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. This is what the author to the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says. Moses decides in the conundrum of his life. Between verses 10 and 11, it's going to say Moses is going to make a decision. God is right. His riches are greater. His call and purpose for my life is more than I want. And you know what? I refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I refuse to let that be my identity. I refuse to let my entire legacy be wrapped up in the title this world gave me. I am a son of the Most High God. I'm a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I want to be used for the very purposes that Christ has called me to be used. That's what happens here, and I love that. But listen, he says, I would rather suffer affliction with the people of God. I would rather suffer being who I have been called to be than continue to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin here in Egypt. That is something only the Holy Spirit of God can work into your heart and bring to a a conviction where you're going to act, right? Only God can show you that. But this is a monumental statement from Moses. This is the moment where Moses starts to become the Moses that we all know and appreciate and are grateful for. But notice that he's going to make a decision that at first is unpopular to everyone around him. There's going to be times where God is calling you, Christian, to do something. And your immediate sphere of influence, it's going to be the most unpopular thing they're, they're ever going to hear. You want to do what? You're going to say, I know what God's called me to do. I know what he's placed upon my heart and where he wants me to go to visit. And I'm going to obey him. Everyone around Moses says, that's the, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard that you want to go and be seen. Among. You want to leave the palace and go choose affliction with all these people who are slaves under heavy oppression right now. But that's what Moses is going to do. And what we're seeing now for the first time, Moses' faith kicks in. When we think about these things that God places upon our heart, we think, sometimes we think, how am I going to be received? We start to be led by fear of the potential outcome before we ever even step out, right? We all do that. We count the cost, but we kind of look, there's, there's what God wants me to do, and I'm supposed to step out in faith and trust him, but there's all the, this fear potential. And I want you to see this. When Moses steps out, his faith conquers his fear. His faith overcomes the impossibilities. I came across the quote, and I really like it. This is a man named Arthur Pink. He was an evangelical author. Listen closely to this. He says, Faith not only elevates the heart above the delights of the sense, but it also delivers it from fear. Faith and fear are opposites, and yet strange to say, they're often found dwelling within the same heart, but where one is dominant, the other will be dormant. 
And I love that where one is dominant, the other will be dormant. We either function in fear or we function in faith. But when we function in faith, that means fear grows dormant because the other is dumb. And I like that. That's what Moses is, is showing us here. And it's so biblical. Look at Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He has also become my salvation. That's the work that only God can do as we let our faith in Him be the most dominant aspect about me. But that's what Moses is going to start to do. That's the decision that he makes. And that takes us to where we're going to pick up verse 11 and finish chapter 2 next week. But I want us to bring this back and I want to make some application to our own lives. I want us to, I want us to think about Moses in these early years. These first 40 years. I, I, want, I want us to think about how God raised him up to be an instrument of deliverance. How God calls him out of this, this place to take him into another place, another arena, another atmosphere, another leadership role, and how that defines the rest of his life. And I want to ask you, does that at all pull at your heart? When you read the Bible, when you read about these godly men and women, and you see what God does, the great exploits that they do in faith, does that pull at your heart at all? I hope it does. When I read my Bible and I read about Moses and I read about Joshua and I read about David and I read about these different men in the Bible, it pulls at my heart. And I say, God, I want to be like that. I want to have a faith like that. Lord, I want to know you like that. I want to trust you like that. That's what the Bible is supposed to do in our hearts and I hope, I hope that does it for you. But if it does, I want you to see some of the questions that Moses had to answer to get to the place where God was calling him to be. He had to, he had to ask the question, if God is calling me to go here, does that mean I'm not where I'm supposed to be at spiritually? God, how are you going to get me from point A to point B? Where am I supposed to be at spiritually? Where can I be? And I want us to understand that the first thing was to get Moses out of Egypt. He has to get him out of the place where he's not supposed to be any longer and then he can send him back in there to deliver his people out. But I just think about this. We're going to talk a lot about this throughout the book of of Exodus that Egypt is a picture of the world. Egypt is a place where we can all get lost for a season or longer in the temporary fleeting passing pleasures of sin. And it just kind of cruises on by and we're like, wow, a bunch of time went by and I I don't think there's any, looking back, there's nothing to glorify God. There's 40 years of silence. Because I wasn't doing anything. I was living for myself. I was living for my own delight. I was living for what feels good in the, mo- in the moment. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's that mentality of the world. But Moses gets to this place where God starts to press upon his heart. I got more for you. And he has to respond. But I want us to think about that for all of us. Is God trying to draw us out of something? Is God trying to draw us out of a, a current way of thinking or, or maybe a, a sphere group of influence or, or maybe just a season that we've been in that just is not bearing any fruit? Is God reaching for us? When was the last time you asked, God, are, are, you, are you trying to tell me something? Are you trying to pull at my heart? Listen, God is always speaking, always. The question is, are we listening? Are we, are we stilling, bringing our heart to a place of stillness and saying, God, Your servant is listening. What are you trying to tell me? What do you want me to do? What are you pressing upon me? Again, some of you know that. Maybe some of you don't. But I encourage you to ask because God has things that he wants to tell you. But I I want you to think that the first thing is he wants to call Moses out of Egypt. I know I keep saying that, but it's just profound to me. If Moses doesn't want to get out of Egypt himself, he's not going to be the one who's able to bring anyone else out of Egypt. Do you get that? If, if Moses' heart is really like, I actually love Egypt. I love being the prince of, of Egypt. Do you know that he can't both be the deliverer and a prince of Egypt? It just, it just can't happen. If I'm, if I'm trying to rescue you out of a sinking ship and I'm in a boat that itself is sinking, do you want to trade one sinking ship for another sinking ship? Like, no, right? You're like, uh, I'm going to wait for the next guy whose boat isn't sinking. But that's what has to happen. We have to say, Lord, I need you to take all the water out of my boat. And sometimes we try to do that ourselves and it's like emptying the boat with a strainer, right? It doesn't work, right? I'm not trying to tell you that you need to make yourself better. I'm saying you need to surrender. I need to surrender to the Lord and say, God, I need your help. I need you to wash me and cleanse me and redeem me and speak truth to me and give me the strength and supply of your spirit to walk 
in this life. But as we agree with that and say, yes, Lord, now all of a sudden he starts to do a work in us that lets us be the vessel that we're called to be of deliverance for another person. If we're inundated with Egypt and inundated with this world and we're out amongst the world, nobody's seeing Jesus in us. We need the Lord to get us out of that place, call us out of that place, place us where he wants us, and then send us back in. That's what he does with Moses. And so I just want us to catch that because that's what has to happen. So the question is, is there too much Egypt in me? Is there too much of the world in me to be used of the Lord? Is that what God wants to take care of first? I think the most miserable place for any Christian is that place of carnality. That place where there's too much of the world in you to be really content in Christ, but there's too much Christ in you to really be content in Him. And so something has to give. You say, I need to deny myself, pick up my cross and follow Jesus. I need to let the Lord be Lord of all and let him lead me through the next season of my life. And then I can start putting the pen down to paper and start to show how God is using me to glorify him. But the whole Exodus account hinges on this moment where God starts to reach for and find something in Moses' heart and Moses responds by saying, I refuse to allow this to define my life anymore. And that's what I just want to charge you with. What is that thing this morning that you could say, God, I refuse to let this sin, to let this addiction, to let this hiccup, to let this title, to let this past thing, to let this current thing, I refuse to let this define me. I have been made a new creation in you, Christ Jesus. All things have been made new. I want you to be my definition. I want you to be my Lord, my Savior, my freedom, my vindication, my justification. I want you, Jesus, to be my identity. I refuse to let those other things that this world wants to call me define me. I refuse to let these worldly titles that people want to give me define me. I refuse to be a son of this world. I am going to be a son or a daughter of God Most High, and I'm going to let him lead me. That's where everything changes in the book of Exodus. As we think about us and the Exodus we want in our lives, or the deliverance that we want in our lives, it starts at the same place. God, I refuse to let the past be my present. I want my present to be my now. I am in you, Christ. You lead me. You guide me. And that's what I want to challenge you with. Who the Son has set free is free indeed. So let faith be dominant and fear grow dormant. Remember that, that Moses is able to forsake the world, forsake Egypt, and God's going to use him to be a great deliverer. That's a picture of Jesus. Jesus overcame this world. And he says, what has the power to overcome this world? Our faith in him. There is power. There is redemption. There is an an ability in Christ to tap into more than what you know. I want to share one more application story before we close out because I really think it just encapsulates what could have been Moses and what sometimes can be us. It says this, it says, A gentleman was walking through an elephant camp and he spot that the elephants weren't being kept in cages or held by the use of chains. All that was holding them back from escaping the camp was a small piece of rope tied to one of their legs. As the man gazed upon the elephants, he was completely confused as to why the elephants didn't just use their strength to break the rope and escape. They could have easily done so, but instead they didn't even try. Curious and wanting to know the answer, he asked a trainer nearby why the elephants were just standing there and never tried to escape. And the trainer replied, when they are very young and much smaller, we use the same size rope to tie them, and at that age, it's enough to hold them. And as they grow up, they're conditioned to believe that they just cannot break away. They believe the rope can still hold them, so they never try to break free. The only reason that the elephants weren't breaking free and escaping from the camp was that over time, they adopted the belief that it just wasn't possible. And I just want you to know that is the same conditioned response that we can get in this world. Oh, you tried once before to walk closely with the Lord and how'd that get you? Oh, you tried to pray. You tried to share your faith. You tried to grow deeper. You tried to listen to the Lord. You tried, right? That's what the world, that's the world trying to say, you tried and failed. And so the next time you try and fail, the same thing's going to happen. But I want to tell you that the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up. And that's true for all of us. Jesus is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than we could ever ask or imagine. And I love that, right? Because if I can imagine it, he can do more. 
If I can even ask for it, he can do more because he says more than I can ask or imagine. And so all I'm asking you to do is don't believe the rope can hold you anymore, right? Don't believe those things that have held you back before. Don't believe that they can keep holding you. Believe that God can set you free. Believe that he is able. Believe that in Christ I can do all things. Believe it. And then ask for the Lord to do it. And then look for those opportunities to be faithful. Refuse to let this world define you. Let Jesus be who he's called you, created you, called you to be. And let it come to fruition in every aspect of your life. It's not going to be overnight. It may take some time, as it probably took some time for Moses. But as you keep yielding yourself to the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, as you keep saying, Father, guide me, lead me, fill me, he will move you from point A to point B. He will conform you into his very image. It is his very will for your life. Whenever we pray, God, make me more like you, he says, yes and amen. That's exactly what I want to do. So believe that again. Grab a hold of that again. Shake off the things that are hindering or the weights that are ensnaring and let Christ, your King, redeem you from whatever he needs to redeem you all over again today. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Let's close out with a couple worship songs. Father, I know you bring people from all sorts of different walks in life into this place. And God, I know that you can take all those diversities and you can take all those different circumstances and you can boil them all down to one common denominator. We all need you, Jesus. We all need you to overcome and, and be set free and to break chains. We, we all need you, Jesus, to have that sense of identity. We all need you, Jesus, to be our target on the wall the one that we're fixing our eyes on so you can lead us out to whatever place we find ourselves in at any time we find ourselves in it. And Father, I just pray for, for you, Holy Spirit, Spirit of peace, Spirit of power, Spirit of love. I just pray that you'd fall upon your people, God. I just pray that every single person in this place would just sense you are God. You are able. You are near, nearer than we think that you are. When we talk about Moses going to visit his people, God, you came and visited us. You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. And so, God, we need you now. We need you tomorrow. We need you for the next day. And we know your mercies are new every single morning. They're new today. And so, God, I just pray for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit to fall upon your church. I pray for truth to reign where doubt and fear is trying to. I pray, Jesus, you would sit enthroned upon our hearts. You would be taking captive thoughts, even now that are trying to exalt themselves above your great name. God, do a work that if you told us today, we wouldn't even believe it. We want to believe it. We'd say, help our unbelief. But God, do a work. Do a work of deliverance. In my brothers and sisters, in, in my heart as well, God, continue to make us more like you, Jesus. Take this year and just do something special. Do something miraculous. Let us yield our lives to you again and again and again. There's no better place we'd rather be than right here at your feet. So come, Holy Spirit. Minister Jesus to us as we close out our time together. Amen.